I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. You are in for a treat today. This week is a really special episode. I'm joined by one of the co-creators of Intuitive Eating, Elise Rash. Now you may have heard Evelyn Tribley on the podcast before, she's the other co-creator, but I was just so thrilled to talk to Elise, talk about a lovely, lovely person, Um, and we kind of get into it at the beginning of the conversation, but you can hear me fangirl a bit, I won't lie, Um, Elise had shown me my book um, that she had been recommending to clients and is a big fan of, which was just a huge moment for me so please just indulge me at the beginning and then then we really get into the conversation but Elise obviously knows intuitive eating inside and out and we had such a great conversation answering your questions that you sent in and I really hope we covered some of those key questions that you have about intuitive eating whether that be what's the kind of stance on intuitive eating and pursuing weight loss We really get into unconditional permission to eat and what that means. We talk about restriction, we talk about satisfaction and some of these really key elements of intuitive eating. And I just think Elise is so brilliant and you can learn and I can learn so much from her. But before we get into the conversation, I want to remind you there are a few spaces left on the 2022 train happy greece retreat think five nights away in chennaia on the island of crete in greece you're looking out over gorgeous crystal blue waters and you're spending five nights with like-minded women who want to learn more about intuitive movement who want to really heal their relationship with exercise and their body and who want to have fun and explore a different country in the process. So if you want to find out more information about that, there are payment plans available and actually the earlier you book, the more that um, benefits you. I will link all of that in the show notes, the 2022 Greece Train Happy Retreat for you to find. And of course, we have to do this week's Train Happy Trooper of the Week. So this week's Train Happy Trooper of the Week is the lovely Sarah. And Sarah says, my Train Happy moment of the week is that I have been poorly for the past week. Usually I would force myself to train even though I wouldn't tell my clients to do this. I'm a PT. But this week I fully rested. I didn't go to the gym or do yoga and more importantly I didn't beat myself up for resting. I took the time to be kind to myself and to my body. Sarah I think this is just a brilliant example of giving yourself that unconditional permission to rest, 
giving yourself the opportunity to truly rest and I definitely think as a personal trainer I'm sure you have felt pressured to always keep going and to always power through because you feel like you have to be an example of fitness to others and yet as trainers especially we need to be setting the example of rest to our clients as well of just how important and beneficial it is for our overall health and well-being as well so I think it's so great that you're able to share this with us so thank you so much if you would like to be featured as train happy trooper of the week and share your own train happy moment with the podcast listeners then you can get in touch with us on our instagram page you can find us at train happy podcast direct messages over there or you can email train happy podcast at gmail.com and if you want to hear more from sarah head over to the instagram page as well because you'll find even more about sarah over on there what her favorite podcast episode is where she likes to listen and what she's taken away from the episode so far. Okay, enough from me. Let's get into this brilliant chat with Elise. Just enjoy. Elise, welcome so much to the podcast. We had our technical difficulties, but we made it. I'm so (laughs) happy to be speaking to you. How are you? Oh, I'm good. And thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy about talking with you. I love your book. So Well, I couldn't believe it when you, yeah, said that you've been recommending Train Happy to clients when considering your, your work and, and uh, uh, Evelyn's work as such a foundation of what I do is, that feels like a huge honor. So just thank you. Um, Well, we're related then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I, you will have read in Train Happy that much of what I do was kind of really inspired by intuitive eating. And I just felt like, hmm, we need to just deep dive on exercise too because that's a really crucial part of this whole thing okay. that we're not discussing enough and um I think obviously you talk about that within the the intrusive eating principles but um do you feel like that with with your work have you felt in the past that oh with it we need some sort of in within exercise we need something to be able to refer to Oh, absolutely. I mean, one chapter is great in a book that has, you know, many principles, but for you to expand on it the way you have, it is definitely great. And we changed the name of that principle to um, movement, not exercise movement. Likewise, I like to change that wording too, because I think exercise can feel so loaded and so punitive if that has been your past relationship, but getting to a more neutral term is really important um but enough about me for the moment I want to talk about you <laughs> okay. um and so for everyone listening um you may know Elise as co-creator of the intuitive eating framework but I'm just really curious how you got into dietetics mm-hmm. was intuitive eating like is that where you were at straight off the bat with your kind of thinking within nutrition or what what was the process of getting you there there's many questions there to one. Uh, sorry, I, I have a really bad habit of doing this. So oh, please no, take no, them no. one at a time. Right. So how did you get into dietetics? Let's okay. start there. So it goes way back to growing up in a home where there was lots of food. There was no talk of dieting. I went to a high school where I never even heard the word diet. I didn't know that diet and size were connected in any way. Uh, I was pretty naive until I got mm. to college. Mm. And uh, when I got to college, I met um, my first husband, my son's father, and his family would be diagnosed today as orthorexic. They were very much into health food. 
um, very scared to eat foods that weren't that weren't healthy. I once ordered a piece of pie and he ordered some pineapple and he started crying and was like, how can you eat that food? So I kind of got pulled into orthorexia at first, just doing it to please. But eventually, I guess I would have been diagnosed with orthorexia as it went on for the years. My uh, former mother-in-law, who may she rest in peace, I loved her dearly, but she was very extreme in eating. And so nutrition was a part of my life. However, I was an elementary school teacher when I got out of college and did that for four years. And then, um, then I had my son. And then a few years later, uh, I found that I wasn't getting pregnant again, because I was dieting. And I mm. was, I was pretty much ruining my fertility with that. That's a long story in and of itself. So I ended up not having another child. And I thought, well, I've got to do something with my life. And I didn't want to be an elementary school teacher as much as I loved it. It was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I was sitting around with uh, some moms (laughs) of other little kids, little toddlers running around. And I said, gee, I I don't know what to do. Should I be a lawyer? What should I do? And someone said, well, you're so into nutrition. Why don't you become a nutritionist? And it was like, okay, ding dong. And I was enrolled in graduate school within a few months of that. And so it just seemed to be the natural outcome. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it, other than knowing I wanted to sit in an office across from someone and talk about eating. And I think at that point, I was probably just coming out of my own eating disorder. And so um, I, I think that for many dietitians, there's been some disordered eating, eating disorder, which draws them into the excitement of talking about eating. So I'm grateful for it. I'm very grateful that I was drawn to this because I've been next year will be my 40th year of, uh, of being a nutrition therapist, uh, helping people, you know, heal their relationship with food. So to answer your question, I was taught traditionally in graduate school, you know, there was nothing about eating disorders, maybe one day in an adolescent nutrition class, they mentioned anorexia one day showed one picture. That was it. And, um, but intuitively, to use the word, I did not feel good about the whole idea. And I absolutely didn't want to do anything uh, to be involved with weight loss. I was trained in a facility connected with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, working with developmentally disabled kids. And I was running the feeding clinic there and worked there for a while after I got my credentials. And I thought that would be my career. I'd be working with families with kids with developmental disabilities. It didn't turn out that way. I didn't get those referrals. I got referrals from doctors who would send me clients for what we would call now medical nutrition therapy, but basically they were saying, help them lose weight. There was such a, you know, weight focus, uh, which unfortunately there still is in the medical community today, but it just didn't feel right to me, but I didn't know what to do. So I gave people some plans. I would tell them, this is not a diet. This is just, uh, you know, a way to eat. But if you want to have a cookie, have one cookie. You know, maybe you could have the apple instead. There was so much of the old thinking that was still in that. And then one day this young woman came to me um, and I gave her her meal plan and she came back and said she couldn't follow it. And I was stymied. Well, why? Everybody else was following it, following it. Everybody else was doing well. And I knew, I just knew there was something wrong with the whole process. And that kind of correlated with the early works on um, non-diet. The Earl, I was reading some books, early ideas of 
how psychologically giving people a diet was not a good idea. And so just tell people they can eat whatever they want. Well, <laughs> I was a dietitian, and how do I tell people to eat whatever they want since I know the nutrient content of all foods, but I was also extremely interested in psychology and it just rang a bell with me. So then I thought I'm going to write a book. I want to write all about this. And I sat down at my computer and put chapter titles. And I think I was um, at that time was going to call it the Tao of eating from Taoism because in Taoism, you don't control, you just let things happen. So that was my concept, but obviously that didn't end up being the title. At the same time, Evelyn and I were colleagues. She was working out of my office one day a week because she lives an hour away from me and was coming up to LA. And um, we ran into each other in the hall and she looked a little unhappy. And I said, Evelyn, what's going on? And she said, oh, I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and she can't write and I don't know what to do. And I had this, you know, burst of an idea. And I just said, I'll write it with you because I knew I was so interested in psychology. So we collaborated and she had similar ideas as mine. And we just sat down and we wrote a, we wrote out, we combined our chapters and wrote uh, a proposal. We ended up getting three offers from three big publishing companies and picked one, uh, St. Martin's Press, and there began Intuitive Eating. And it was in 1995 that the first edition came out. We're now in the fourth edition that just came out last year. So it's been quite an evolution and we have evolved in our thinking in a lot of ways as well. Um, so I don't know if, did I answer your question? You definitely <laughs> did, you definitely did. And I think it is interesting that even in 1995, you were kind of ahead of the game, but also, you know, you, there is a fourth edition of intuitive eating for a reason now that, that there's had to be revisions made and, and kind of adaptations made for, you know, the new world as we kind of, you know, are in 2021, it's only appropriate. Um, and yeah, what was the kind of reception to intuitive eating in 1995? Were people going, oh my goodness, this makes total sense? Or how do you feel it's been, um, I suppose, having discovered intuitive eating more recently, largely due to the the um, social media, due to social media, really, would, would I have found it on my own? Maybe eventually, but I think thanks to places like Instagram, you can, there's a lot more people talking about it. So it feels like it's really in its um, peak of people really kind of discussing it. And it feels really um, of the moment, but this has been going on for 25 years. So how does it feel for you being there from the, obviously the complete beginning? Well, it was so interesting with my individual clients. And I've always seen a lot of clients from the beginning of my career. They were excited because most of them had been on many diets, were frustrated, didn't know what to do. And for me to offer them this new world, this this world of freedom with eating, they were scared, but they were excited. So individually, there was a lot of reception. You're correct. There wasn't a lot of ways to get it out there. I remember doing some interviews early on. Uh, I probably the publisher set up some book signings and a few things, but I, I agree with you. I think the world of um, social media has allowed the rest of the world and to really, you know, see that there's a different way, a way of getting out of that trap that people are in. And how mm -hmm. would you describe intuitive eating for those people who are like, okay, Tali and Elise, I get you, but what is it? How would you describe it? Someone asked when I was 
putting out for questions um, yeah. online, actually. And they said, mm -hmm. what would your elevator pitch be? Ah, well, that's an interesting term. Uh, yes, and there's, by the way, before I start with that, there's so much confusion. Mm. There's so many myths about what intuitive Well, I want to get into that. I want to get into yeah. that. So I'm really happy to clarify it. Clarify it. So it's basically a compassionate self-care framework for helping people uh, get tuned back into that internal wisdom that the majority of people are born with in this very, very private place inside that each of us has only only you and only the person can know about hunger and fullness and what tastes good and what doesn't and how their bodies feel. And so it's in there. We're born with it. I mean, anytime you're around babies, you can see that they have the instinct to, to eat and to stop when they're full. Um, however, we get so distracted from it by diet culture, which wasn't a term back in 1995. It's fairly new. And, um, so I actually have a more descript uh, definition of it. And by the way, it is um, the framework has 10 guiding principles, which are really just guidelines. They're not absolutely not rules. What I like to say is that intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. And I want to explain that a little further. It's based on what we call the triune brain, the three parts of the brain um, that we humans have. And the first part is the uh, reptilian brain. It came, it evolved at the time of the dinosaurs and dinosaurs had instinct. It was their instinct to survive. No feelings, no thoughts, instinct. And so when they'd see a little dinosaur or they would see, um, you know, some bushes or whatever, their instinct was eat it, go for it. No thinking about it, worrying about it. And that reptilian brain sits on top of the brainstem in humans. It's still with us, but it began way back then. And when mammals came around, uh, another layer of brain functioning evolved, and that's called the limbic or mammalian brain. And you know, good, good words, reptilian, mammalian. And that is a seat of emotions and social behaviors. And it sits on top of this matrix, this brainstem matrix, uh, above the brainstem matrix of instinct. So that's where our emotions are. And then what differentiates us as humans is the neocortex or the rational part of the brain. So intuitive eating takes into consideration all parts, instinct, emotion, and thought. And the myths out there think it's only about instinct. Some mm. of them, you're just, just go, your body will just tell you. you, you know, it doesn't really look at how your feelings affect your eating, how your thinking affects your eating. And uh, going back to the, the, the uh, mammalian brain, I mean, cats and dogs, people know have emotions, but they can't articulate them. And so that's why we humans have this wonderful opportunity to think, to learn, to relearn, <laughs> and um, to be able to help ourselves with our eating. Does that help? It does. And I think it's so true, because as you said, the common misconceptions around intuitive eating that people take it really at face value and think it's yes. only about eating when you're hungry stopping when you're full and don't necessarily uh, understand the 10 guiding principles that kind of add the layers to that but also the way you've described it is so interesting that those three parts that's what the principles for me kind of give you a bit of information on to help you figure that out for yourself you know um the other kind of, well, you said it yourself, I think intuitive eating is certainly as it's risen in popularity and getting known more, 
people are very quick to judge. You have huge names in kind of health and fitness, such as Jillian Michaels. Oh dear. You know, um, going, <laughs> you know, giving her two cents on something that she clearly hasn't read read about. I mean, she's never even biggest, read the book. <laughs> well, that was my biggest takeaway. Is like you've just heard the term intuitive eating. You know, it's not a diet, and so the the instinctual reaction is to go, well, people can't just eat whatever they want. Um, and it stops there. And I just wonder what other, how else you may have heard intuitive eating be co-opted or be kind of used to promote dieting and, you know, from the founder itself, um, what are your kind of thoughts on that? And what was the original intentions of intuitive eating? So the beginning of this is people are threatened by intuitive eating because it has gained so much popularity. So people who are so um, tied to the rules that they think are the right way or who are so tied up in diet culture and believe that the only, you know, important thing in life is to become as thin as you can, a Jillian Michaels, thin thin and fit kind of thing, that um, they're kind of scrambling. And so I did, I did watch that. YouTube video of her. And I'm thinking, lady, you have not read this. You have no concept of what you're saying. So you must be really scared. So I think there's that angle. I think there's also kind of like piggybacking on the popularity of intuitive eating. So the one that got me recently um, was Gwyneth Paltrow came out with a book that is called Intuitive Fasting. And she, (laughs) I think her publishing company wrote it, somebody else wrote it, and she published it. And I have to laugh. I mean, sure, I intuitively fast when I'm sleeping. I don't eat that, but it's so counter. I mean, we can't intuitively fast. Our bodies are so smart. Our brains are so smart. So we get those signals to eat and it's not a, um, we never uh, intuitively feel like we should fast. I mean, maybe if you have a blood test at the doctor's office, you're told to fast, but you know, other than that. So there's that. The other one that's really making uh, us very angry is Noom. I don't know if you've that. was the one I was going to bring up because Noom is really trying to take on this whole psychology of eating angle. And it's just another diet. It's just another just um, another diet. Yeah. Evelyn and I just did an experiment. We decided we'd sign up for Noom for the just for the fun of it to see what they were pre- presenting. And within the first day of it, almost it's like, how many pounds do you want to lose? And here's your, you know, here's what you should eat to lose this at this rate. I couldn't even keep it up on my. I got rid of it within a day or two. I couldn't stand it. It's too, too angering. <laughs> oh, angering! Where do they get the nerve to say that this is intuitive? Mm. Not at all. And um, we actually consulted a lawyer about this, but they're a very big company and we're just two little people you know, that, that, I mean, we're, we are quite known, but we don't have the kind of funds that they have to really challenge them in that way. Apparently I heard that um, I think some, they bought space on Google to when that you put an intuitive eating in, I think the first thing that comes up intuitive eating course or something is Noom. And it's just, it's a lie. Makes, makes us very angry. And we feel very powerless some of the time because as I said, we're individuals. We're not big corporations and companies that can throw you know millions of dollars into this kind of thing. So I see it in these huge companies. I also see it with individuals online who maybe, for example, someone sent me a post recently and said, 
Tally, I don't think this is this isn't true intuitive eating, is it? And it was a kind of a slide deck on on Instagram where you could slide through, and it said like intuitive eating, and then it was all like you know if you want a cookie, eat an apple, you know that kind of stuff that you were talking about right. previously. Um, and it's interesting because I do think people are getting this awareness and and have the kind of intuitive eating literacy, shall we say, to kind of sift through and figure out what's the real deal and what isn't but it's certainly I'm seeing that people on an individual level are also misunderstanding whether intentionally or not I think there are people who just hear intuitive eating and I know myself having previously also have um, been through my own orthorexic phase and really come out of that early in my orthorexia, um, orthorexia days when I wasn't counting calories I thought I was eating intuitively I thought I thought eating intuitively was literally just the absence of tracking on my fitness pal I didn't understand that it was a framework um, mm-hmm. and so it's been really interesting to learn and as you do learn you're like I need to tell everyone that this isn't what you think it is um, because there is that really basic misunderstanding. And I think in, I think in some cases it is with um, just misinformation and not necessarily a willingness to not know, but I do certainly think there are people who know what, what it is and want to misrepresent it for their own gain. Yeah, so intuitive eating is so nuanced. And unfortunately, mm. people think in a binary way, all or nothing. And so they, if they're coming from diet culture and don't understand intuitive eating, they turn it into an all or nothing thing. Eat everything in sight. Yeah. Or, or otherwise you're restricting. Well, that's not true. Eat all day long. It doesn't matter. Eat or eat only when you're at exact number of hunger or exact number of fullness. You know, that's not, that really has nothing to do with intuitive eating. That's just a distortion of it. So for people who are curious about intuitive eating, who are listening, what are those initial steps you would make? I know the first principle is reject the diet mentality. Is that where you encourage all your clients to start? So it's interesting. That is always in all the intuitive eating books, because there are a number of them out now. That is always the first principle, because if you're still holding on to the idea of well, if this thing doesn't work, this intuitive eating thing doesn't work, oh, there's that diet out there that I'll try. And if you're still in that space, what ends up happening is that uh, that mere perception of future deprivation, like if this doesn't work, I'll be on that diet. Well, what does a diet do? It deprives you of either particular foods or an amount of food that's satisfying. So people have to be in a space where they have come to understand they can't live like that anymore. They can't do that anymore. It's not, this is not an experiment intuitive eating. This is a return to original wisdom that we're born with. And so uh, that is the first place to go is to really look deeply within and ask yourself, are you ready to truly give up dieting? Because Mm. can't hold on to a little bit of dieting and be an intuitive eater. So that's the first thing after that. Sorry, can I just add on a side note there? Because one of the key key questions, and I know this might just derail us just for one second. That's okay. But um, one of the key questions was, what is your stance on intuitive eating and weight loss? Are those two a thing? Can I pursue intentional weight loss whilst on intuitive eating? Can I intuitively lose weight? I think that's a lot of the kind of line of questioning I get about this, and I'm sure you get it all the time too. 
So first of all, that question comes from this pervasive belief in the culturally thin ideal. Mm-hmm. So if, we're, if, gee, if I'm going to give up dieting, but as, now I need another weight to lose weight. So it's a very weight centric way of thinking. I have to say that I have an enormous amount of compassion for people who are in that uh, way of thinking because they're so pressured because they hear it they're bombarded. I mean, diet culture is ubiquitous. It's toxic. It's, it's all over. You can't avoid it in the world today. So I have compassion for them. Uh, and I start with that with my clients and let them know that, you know, there's nothing wrong with them for having that desire. However, focusing on weight loss completely interferes with being in touch with your inner signals. Mm. And um, no, you cannot have a thought of I'm pursuing weight loss, and I'm going to be an intuitive eater. Nobody knows how it's going to end. I mean, there are some people that have been suppressing their weight for so long that they're really terribly underweight and they'll gain weight. And some people who have perhaps um, not been eating in touch with hunger and fullness and are, are eating volumes of food and learn how to be in touch, their weights go, might change in a different direction. Some people may stay the same. So there's no guarantee of what's going to happen. However, putting that focus on it is troublesome. So no, the answer is no. It is not a weight loss plan and you cannot be uh, liberated from diet culture by thinking about weight loss because it's part of diet culture. Do you think that part of that rejecting the diet mentality as well is letting go of needing the outcome, of needing to know the outcome that I I need to be in control of what my weight is about to do. And it's part of it is letting go of control. And as someone who thrives on control, I know how difficult that is. Well, you know, we can't fool mother nature. I mean, yeah. we are we are programmed by our genes, by our DNA. And nobody questions their height. I mean, they may not like it. They may think they're too tall or too short, but nobody says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to control it or other aspects, eye color or hair color. Sure, you can dye your hair, you can wear contact lenses, but you can't change, you know, what this is permanently. And um, so uh, I think that here's the thing, Tally. I'm going to jump off also. Intuitive eating is a social justice issue. There is so much oppression in our world in so many ways for all marginalized communities. And what many people don't understand is that weight can be an oppression, that people are judged, people believe certain characteristics about people in larger bodies, and it's oppressive. And weight stigma is uh, so dangerous and so unhealthy. So... um, Let's see. What's the original question? I got off track. I'm sorry. About the need to let go of control in, yeah. that, in that rejecting yeah. diet mentality. Exactly. So, so given that our bodies are going to be what they're going to be, I, there's a word I like, which is homeobalance. And mm. um, it's not homeostasis because things don't ever really, I don't know where anybody came up with that term because things don't stay in the, the same. Our, our GI tract is, you know, renewing cells almost every day. But homeobalance means keeping everything in balance. So the more you try to change your weight, just like you can't change your height, the more you would try to change your weight that you're programmed to be DNA wise, the more there's going to be a kickback, a really serious kickback to get you back to where you were. 
uh, and uh, typically more than where you were, because that instinctual part of the brain, if it could talk, which it can't because it's instinct, would say, I'm panicked, I'm, you're starving me. And it'll do everything it can to help the organism, the, per- the person stay alive. Yeah, and that can feel difficult. I think if you've been in diet culture, if you've, if you are in that weight centric headspace that you spoke about, where we equate so much to thinness and a certain, being a certain weight, being a certain size, um, whether that is, you know, getting a certain level of privilege that you kind of mentioned about, mm-hmm. um, whether it's the uh, the kind of health aspect, which I think a lot of people feel really tied to. We've done previous episodes on this. So I hope regular listeners are kind of going, well, we know that that's not all necessarily as, you know, binary and black and white as it appears. Um, but I think that rejecting the diet mentality part of, of intuitive eating can take a while and, um, can almost feel like that is the foundation of everything else. And once you're able to really, almost surrender to, okay, I'm going to give this a full go and I'm going to give it 110%. That's when you can really make progress with with your relationship with food. And this is about mental health. I mean, when, when a person is dieting, it affects their emotions, it affects their mental health. And letting go of diet mentality, challenging diet culture that is so freeing. And I mean, there have been over 140 studies, scientific studies on intuitive eating and the value of it, increasing mental health, you know, ability to cope, uh, self-esteem, body acceptance, that kind of thing. But you can see how this is all tied into um, oppression that I was talking about and weight stigma is that people might say, yeah, 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 it's a good idea. Diets don't work. I understand. I don't want to do that but they're so terrified of being stigmatized at whatever their, you know, DNA program weight is that that's why I have so much compassion because who wants to be in a world where people are judging them all their time, all the time. Mm -hmm. The problem is you can't really change your set, you know, your, your, well, it's called set point theory, but you can't really change how you're meant to be size, shape. It is what it is. Yeah. And, and with an industry that tells you, you can, and wants to sell you the solution that feels like a hard pill to swallow, I think. Well, yes. And it's, it's over a $7 billion a year industry, the whole diet complex, you know, diet culture complex. I mean, it's just horrifying and people are just out there to make money on people's failure because (laughs) diets fail. They fail. And I, I was listening to the maintenance phase podcast. I don't yes, know if you're aware of it. it. I it's love so it. It's so good. Yes. And I was listening to an episode today on the obesity epidemic is what it was called. And I strongly recommend everyone go listen. Yes. Um, and they just kind of made the kind of flippant point, but just the fact that, you know, this is decades worth of trying to find this, this supposed solution to this supposed problem. And especially when it comes to diets that people have been trying to find this magic bullet to help people lose weight and maintain it for long-term without risk of harm and, and everything else that goes along with it. We still haven't got any solution. We still haven't got that. And the fact that, I don't know, people think they're, they're going to find it is just so interesting to me that, you know, um, 
we always come back to the same point. You know, we always come back to this, well, okay, well, the diet works short term, but it's not happening long term. And no one wants to accept that fact. Yeah, there's so much tied into this. I think that the whole control thing, as you're talking about also, is people people don't want to face their mortality. I mean, it's terrifying. And so uh, since quote unquote obesity has been unfortunately, um, you know, seen to be a cause of ill health, which is not true. The studies don't show that. There's this narrative, well, I want to be thinner so I can be healthier or I mean, of course, along with I want to be more desirable because that is what is, you know, deemed to be the desirable way to to look. And it's heartbreaking. That's all I can say. It's heartbreaking. If I can help change anybody's sense of themselves and their self-worth, this is so much about values. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really about digging deeply into what the true meaning is of one's life. And to put so much emphasis on one size takes them completely away from all the other wonderful characteristics they have and reasons for being here on this planet. Yes, you have far more to contribute to this world than the size of your body. Yes. That is actually, the way I see it is it's the body is just the shell for who you are. And if we focus to who you are, that's so key. And when it comes to body image work, I'm a huge fan of Lindsay and Lexi Kite of Beauty Redefined. I've heard of them. I haven't read them. I read them. Elise, you need their work. It is brilliant. I can't, I'd recommend just watching their TED talk to begin with, but it's so good. And their whole mantra is you are more than a body. And um, they have another phrase, which I repeat regularly on this podcast, which is my body is an instrument to be used, not an ornament to be looked at. I've heard I, that term. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's theirs. That's theirs. And oh. they're just so great at really helping you kind of shift that building your self-esteem rather through, you know, necessarily loving what you look like, but really focusing on who you are. And for me, I think that's so crucial. I want to pivot a little bit to talk about, um, restriction. Mm-hmm. We just did an episode on binge eating and this came up a lot and we were talking about binge eating through an intuitive eating lens. And I, we were talking about how kind of restriction plays a role in keeping us stuck in that binge restrict cycle. And even just the thought, like you said, that there may be a diet in the future can keep us stuck in that restriction. I would just really love to hear your perspective on restriction and how it shows up for your clients and how we can let go of that restriction. You know, what can we really do and how does intuitive eating help us to do that? Well, I think first of all, going back to compassion, understanding that people are so scared of so many things. Teenagers are scared of growing up and having to be adults, especially in this world today. As I said, fear of mortality. I mean, they're so scared of so much. So we have to be very compassionate and empathic uh, for people who are trying to find some way to cope with that. And so Mm -hmm. control becomes part of it. So restriction is part of the control. Also, there are a lot of people who've had so much trauma early in life and feel so out of control uh, in terms of the things that have happened to them in life. So they grab onto the control of restriction. The problem is that... um, there's no way to restrict without an outcome of being out of control. Mm. 
you know, we have this perception that, yeah, we can have control in this universe, but there is no control. There's more managing ourselves, you know, with the best self-care, but eventually the more you try to control, the more it becomes out of control. So I think if people, number one, understand why they're trying to control their food, is there a deeper meaning to them beyond their thinking, oh, my life will be better if I'm thinner? Is it uh, a way that they've developed to cope in their lives and to address that and to address the trauma? Uh, sometimes that has to be done before they're able to get to that place of understanding that they are far more than their bodies and mm. that they are, you know, um, the, the phrase you just used of um, they're not ornaments, they're vehicles. Um, not an ornament to, your body is an instrument to be used not an ornament oh, to be looked yes. at yes yeah. so you know our bodies are here for so many things that our bodies if we're lucky if we have privilege can do and um so I think starting with that understanding why did you get how did you get pulled into restriction and control is does it have a deeper meaning because I'm so interested in psychology I never look at things Me just too. in a surface way right Me we too. Have to, yeah so we have I to mean, go deeper sorry to interrupt um I totally agree with you I think the restriction is the tip of the iceberg and actually what's interesting is that big bit underneath the water of what's really that foundation of that and and that's really huge um and in my experience for me intuitive eating helped me to deal with the food stuff so then I could deal with the stuff underneath Mm -hmm. I did so, it that way around yeah you I mean nobody is the same and so some people are able to yeah. approach it one way and others in another way uh, but people seem to be mad at themselves all the time they always think they're doing something wrong mm -hmm. and uh, rather than that look through this lens of coping we only do the best we can do at the time. And if the best we can do is restriction and controlling our food because it's the only thing we have access to, so be it. Now let's look at, you know, kind of the pros and cons of that. Okay, this is what it gave you, but what is it taking away from you? Uh, so that one can come to that place of being motivated to make change. Nobody will make change if they're not motivated. So it takes a lot of understanding what's behind it all. And for you, it sounds like by changing the, the food concept, you became happier, you became freer. So then that allowed you the space to go deeper. So one way or the other, you get to both ends of that. Yeah, one way or the other, you're going to have to sit with that therapist and you're going to have to work right. through it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody has deep-seated issues and that's why they died. I'm not suggesting that. I think there's a lot of it. I think there are just so many people that are just so influenced by diet culture because as I said, it's ubiquitous and, and um, it's hard. It's hard to get away from it. And you were, were mentioning social media earlier. Mm. I mean, as I mentioned, when I was in high school, <laughs> There was no social media. There was no internet. And so if you didn't happen to hang around with the kids that were doing the dieting, as I didn't, I didn't know about dieting. And today you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And that leads me really nicely onto actually, because you have, obviously you started work um, teaching children and you've since developed an intuitive eating workbook, workbook for teens. And this isn't really something we've spoken about as much on the podcast. And I'd be really interested in how how that how intuitive eating really relates to people going through those formative years because 
we know that people, teens, especially late teens going into your early 20s, that can be a really um, vulnerable time, I think, for people to to really be impressionable and um, be at risk of developing an eating disorder. So, um, yeah, I would just be interested in how this works with teenagers and what that's what it's like and what the differences are. Well, first Sorry, of all, of amazing. Again. It's okay. It's amazing. I love working with teens. And I think that the first piece of it is understanding their developmental stage. What is a teenager's job? It's a job to rebel against what they're being told to do and so that they can de- develop their identity, to individuate, to separate, you know. So um, the fascinating thing about intuitive eating, which I didn't mention earlier, is that it's really based on autonomy. And and so since teenagers are um, striving for their autonomy, speaking to them at that age and helping them understand how um, making decisions about their food, making decisions about how much, what they eat, how little, well, not too little, but, you know, just making their own decisions, how it's a way for them to express their need to rebel against society. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm going to go off for a moment, but one of the things that I'm finding with pretty much all of my teens that I work with, they are so open to social justice issues. And when I explain that to them, that this is a social justice issue, as I had said earlier, when I help them understand that uh, they don't believe in discrimination, at least the teens I work with anyway, and I live in California. Um, So they're really taken by that and to look look through this lens of uh, being a social justice issue, they're far more open to understanding that it fits for them their developmental stage of needing to have autonomy, this fits for them. Don't just be like every other person out there who's thinking, you know, the only thing important in life is to be as thin as I can be. Be your own person. Look at your own values. And when I wrote the book, at first I thought, well, why write a book for teens? I mean, they're almost adults. They can read the adult book because there's an adult workbook. And then I went, no, 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 no. They're in such a different developmental stage. And so I wrote it in a way, kind of talking in teen language the best I could and helping them understand this critical issue of autonomy, which again, of course, I'm so interested in psychology. And that comes from Eric Erickson, who is a psychoanalyst, his, um, eight stages of man, which really should have been human, about how we each have to go through the psychosocial stage and conquer it to get on to the next so we can be healthy adults. And this is a piece that comes up in toddlerhood and then reemerges in teen years. So now let's see with all the questions, have I? <laughs> you, got, you, you covered them. And I think you're right with those teen years, like we say, they're so um, pivotal. We know that so many people get I imagine I hear anecdotally from people I talk to that, you know, their diet started when they were 12, they were told to do X, Y, and Z. And it's just a slippery slope from there into a further and further disordered and unhappy relationship with food. So what you're doing is really kind of catching people at this pivotal moment and redirecting them. And I think it's so important. And redirecting them sometimes from their parents' viewpoint and their doctor's viewpoint. Yeah. It happens often early, especially for, for um, females. It is um, at that point when their bodies are in going into puberty 
and they're needing to gain weight to a, a lot of weight to go from little girlhood to adolescence, that's where people panic. Parents panic. Oh my God. Oh, look at her in that bathing suit. Her belly's sticking out or, or the doctor says, Ooh, you better watch it. The pediatrician is often the problem. And then the parents start trying to control a child. So that's the, the kernel of the beginning of this thinking that I'm not okay the way my body is and not accepting that our bodies change throughout our lives. Mm. It's just a, for sure. (laughs) What's your message to parents then in that scenario? Because I do think people, you know, want to do the best for their children, especially adults who've had their own tricky relationship with food. I do think my generation, you know, older millennials and, and such are, are having children and really wanting to not pass on this stuff to kind of break that generational cycle. But at the same time, you get these doctor's notes, you get children being weighed at school. How as a parent do you stay strong with that? And um, how do you deal with that? Well, the first most important thing is checking your own relationship with food as a parent, both parents, if there are two parents, or if there, you know, is only one, but, but checking your own relationship with food and your relationship with your body, because you can't hide it. If you're having struggles with your body and thinking that it's not good enough, something's going to come out and a child hearing, seeing a, a, a parent in front of the mirror saying, oh, I can't stand this, whatever part of their body, they love their parents. What's, if there's something wrong with their parents, there must be something wrong with them. So that's the first piece. The second piece is doing as much reading as they can uh, about how to bring up a child. And I will tell you, there's an exciting new book coming out in January, which I fortunately didn't write, but I consulted on the whole thing with the authors and I wrote the foreword for it. It's How to Raise an Intuitive Eater by um, Sumner Brooks and Amy Severson. I advise everybody to go out and pre-order that book because it will go through all the steps and questions that you're asking, Tally. And I I think it's becoming an advocate for your children. It's becoming a... uh, you know, uh, an agent of change in the schools with the doctors. This is just a sidebar, but I have this uh, campaign to talk to every doctor I can. I just had a, uh, this is again, a sidebar, but I had an appointment with a new dermatologist who was very thorough medically, wasn't very bedside mannery, but I noticed that the gown that I was wearing just kept opening, you know, it didn't, it, it wasn't closing. And, and I said to her afterwards, you know, what happens for people in, in large bodies and larger bodies, you know, that do you have larger gowns? And she looked at me like, what? And she opened the drawer and said, oh, no, they only come in one size. And I'm going to have to do more work around that. I educated my new gynecologist in the same way, young woman who has a baby about she never heard of intuitive eating. And so I was <laughs> told her about it, ran to my car to get her one of the books. And when I came back, she was on the internet looking up intuitive eating. So I think that we have to be um, assertive. We have to speak up. We have to, when we go into a doctor's office and they ask us to get on the scale, we say, no, there is absolutely no reason to be weighed. And okay, then they don't. I mean, I suspect that there might be something with a medication that has to be titrated, you know, but you don't have to 
be told your weight exactly you don't you don't even have to know it you know it doesn't even need you don't it's not essential and I think especially for people who have more privilege with their bodies and smaller bodies if we're able to have these conversations in a doctor's office um you know whether it's gowns and things like that I think that's so important because sadly the smaller you are, the more seriously you're taken in those situations, the more trusted uh, absolutely. you are taken in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's another heartbreaking piece of weight stigma that people who are in larger bodies just do not get the kind of medical care that they need to get. There's so much prejudice. I have a client who's a surgeon. I was talking to her yesterday and she has shifted her whole mindset since she's been working with me. And she was saying to me, I've, I'm talking to these doctors around me who won't do surgeries on people. Uh, And she said, there's nothing wrong with the people. There's something wrong with our surgeries. We have to adopt our surgeries to every size person. And I was so thrilled to see how she's evolved since we began our work and how maybe she now will affect the doctors in her hospital, which she works with. You must have worked with so many people of different um, career paths and backgrounds. Actually, you are really probably being that agent of change by planting a seed in all these different people. And does it also interest you? I'm, you know, whether it's probably working with doctors and lawyers and people who, who will have been so highly educated or, you know, would have had so much discussion around this, that things like dieting and, and weight and health, those kind of things that people just take for granted. They, they just take, take on board what they've been told. Don't really question it. Um, Do you find that a lot? I find it all over the place that um, they just hear it. They, you know, it goes from one medical doctor to one patient, to one friend, to another medical doctor, and it just becomes what they believe. And so I'm really having to challenge this. I have to challenge it with facts and with psychology and, you know, something you said earlier about how diets, you know, no matter what, they keep trying the diet industry, finding a diet. Well, you know, helping people understand that what you're being told is a lie. You're being, number one, you're being told that you're not good enough unless you're a certain size. And then you're being told that you have to change your size and yet there's no way to do it. And then to equate your weight with your health is so skewed and looking at that as well and looking at the impact of, as I talked about before, weight stigma on a person's health, on their stress levels, on their cortisol levels, you know, which is actually a problem with health is having high cortisol. The more stressed out you are because you're afraid of being judged, the more stressed out you are because you're trying to stay on some diet that's going to work, the more stressed out you are because you think you're a failure. Wow, that's a problem with health. And the more stressed out you are because you're deprived, because your body doesn't have the energy it needs, doesn't have sufficient fuel to tank. Absolutely. (laughs) That's one of the crazy, you know, one of the things for me, I found that when I finally started eating enough that my thinking expanded my you know just my thoughts and interests and hobbies kind of blossomed because I had the energy to do that my you know my just experiences got richer you know whether it be with friends and things like that because I was able to be more present I wasn't so tired all the time it's just so interesting that just eating enough can already enhance your life Well, it's physical energy, it's mental energy, it's opening up space that was so focused on 
whether you're eating the right way or your body and letting that go. Yes, it's exactly what you're saying. But physical energy is so important. People don't realize that they are um, pushing down their physical needs and their mental needs by just even a little bit of a little, I don't know, it's like a little bit pregnant, a little bit of dieting. I mean, it's like anytime you go below what your body is telling you you need, you're causing harm to your brain and causing harm to your physical energy. There are studies that show that kids who eat breakfast do far better in school than the kids who go to school without breakfast, just right there. They don't have the glucose in their brain since the brain has to, for your listeners, the only energy that can enter into the brain is carbohydrate, it's glucose. The people who say carbs are bad. I mean, my goodness, it's the only form of energy the brain can use. So. I certainly can tell the difference. I certainly, I know that if, if I've eaten, I'm so much better. And that's, I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but that's one of my subtle hunger cues is when my brain starts not yes. quite, been, not quite finish those sentences or not quite exactly trying to write something. And I can't quite think of what I want to say. I'm like, it's lunchtime. Yes. For sure. Well, that's important. You're talking about something we call interoceptive awareness, which is really listening to every message that your body gives you from within and uh, being respectful of that and knowing that this is this is the wisdom right there. Your body's telling you and whether it's a, a strong hunger signal, I don't tend to get hunger signals in my stomach. I kind of feel it around my throat. And if I start to get a headache and can't yes. concentrate, I'm way far gone. You know, I've waited too long. Yeah. So very important. It's so interesting hearing everyone's own different kind of ways that their body communicates to them. Um, One thing I wanted to talk about with that restriction piece we were talking about is that the unconditional permission to eat and how we give ourselves that. And I think um, this is one of the key parts of intuitive eating that I think people struggle with a lot. Okay. What is unconditional permission to eat? Well, first of all, people are terrified. They're terrified that if they allow themselves to eat whatever they want and in whatever quantity they want, that they'll never stop eating, that it will go on forever and ever and ever. And they don't really understand that role of restriction and that that is what triggers going on forever with a particular food. Uh, so uncont- unconditional permission to eat means you don't restrict any particular food. You don't tell yourself how much you're allowed to have. You tune into your body and um, it's not just hunger and fullness, it's satisfaction, which is, I love to look through the lens of satisfaction when we talk about the, the principles, because if you tune in to how the food is tasting to you, you're going to notice that if you start without an appetite, because you're not hungry, it's not going to be as good. If you keep eating beyond comfortable fullness, it just doesn't taste as good as it did, you know, in the beginning. Um, So it's not like there's an external, and that's why they like to use the hunger scale when they do it in such a, you know, kind of, um, well, it's restricted way. It's really uh, listening to your body, listening to your tongue, listening to your to your satisfaction level that will help you know guide you. So let me talk further about people's fear of giving themselves unconditional permission. What they haven't learned yet, and what one of the things I like to teach people is the whole concept of of concept of habituation. 
So habituation means the greater the stimulus, the less the response. The more we have something, the less exciting it is. The less we have of something, the more deprived we feel. So what's forbidden is what we want. And so by taking away the forbiddenness, by giving this full permission, what ends up happening is food simply becomes food. You can decide whether you love it, whether you don't love it. And there is no runaway train with it because you can have it forever. Now, now let me take a sidebar again. We've been doing sidebars, but um, at a certain level, intuitive eating is a privilege. I mean, if someone is uh, has food insecurity, if someone lives in a food desert, if someone can't have access to whatever they feel like eating, that part of intuitive eating is not accessible to them. Uh, if they have to eat more than their bodies are telling them because they don't know when their next meal's coming, so be it. Let's not judge anybody for that. Um, but for people who have the privilege of being able to get enough food and to know that they can get it again when they want it, that understanding is very calming. And the habituation starts to take place. I, I had uh, a client once years ago that we started out with grilled cheese sandwiches. She loved them, but she restricted them. So her assignment that week was to go out and have grilled cheese sandwiches as much as she wanted. And there was a local restaurant that had grilled cheese week. And she was so excited. And she went to that restaurant every day. She had that privilege. And uh, she came back the next week. And she, said, she said, after the third day, I didn't want to look at a grilled cheese sandwich or pizza. I mean, that was the doctor I was mentioning her, she had a lot of pizza in the house and she was eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for three, two days. I think she said two days, three days, three days. And she didn't want to look at pizza. She was just craving a salad at that point and some salmon. So it's about trusting that with that permission, you're going to make the best decision for yourself. Without the permission, you're going to be led by the psychology of deprivation Abraham Maslow is a, um, was a psychologist who created a model called the hierarchy of needs. And he said, we, and I'm not sure if I'm quoting him exactly, but he said, we are driven by our unmet needs. So what we don't have is what we seek. So if you tell yourself you can't have something, you're going to seek it. And if you get your hands on it and think you won't get it again, that's what we were talking about before in terms of the mere perception of future deprivation, you're going to try to get as much as you can. I have that going on with this particular yogurt that I found that I absolutely love. It's this coffee yogurt. I love coffee in any form. And I've been buying it and buying a lot of it because I had an intuition that it might go away. In the last few weeks, I haven't been able to find it. And so I was afraid of future deprivation of it's my favorite yogurt right now. And so I bought a lot of it. I'm now I'm glad I have a little bit extra. Hope it'll come back again. <laughs> a little stockpile. Yeah, right. I certainly have experienced that thing of just letting myself eat the food and realizing, oh, I don't even like it that much. Oh. Well, yes. And that's so I hear that all the time because they've thought they shouldn't eat it. I just had somebody say that to me yesterday. It's like, you know, I, I don't even like half of those things that I wasn't letting myself eat. I but they had such loved, a value. Yeah. yeah, I thought I loved Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Uh, I don't. To me, right? it's not quite right. I like Hagen Dazs ice cream. Yes. What I love. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yes. Yeah, it's just that bit creamier. But I used to, you know, if I was in that, that kind of restriction mindset, um, Ben and Joe's would be a treat. And I'd allow myself to sit with a spoon and eat it out the tub. And I'd, I'd pretty much eat, share a tub with my boyfriend and pretty much eat half, if not more than half. And for me, that was 
just because I could, because I'd allowed myself that one time a week when I was allowed to do that. And I look back and like, did I really actually enjoy what I was eating? Did I taste it? Did I really taste it? Or did I just eat it because I was allowed to in the moment? And when I'm allowed to act, and now I can eat whatever I want, whenever I want, I don't want it. And I much prefer a smaller pot of Haagen-Dazs and I really savor it and it tastes so much better because I'm actually present with the food. See, that was your teenager in you. That was your rebellious part against having been told you shouldn't have it. So when it was there, you just had to get as much as you could. Especially as when I was a teenager, my parents didn't have loads of money. We weren't allowed to get Ben and Jerry's because that was an expensive ice cream. And as an adult, I finally had access to it. Uh So it was so exciting to treat myself. And I'd never thought of it that way, but you're so right. That was so my me being a bit I'm quite rebellious I hate being told what to do and so when I get a chance to do my own thing yeah I do like to break the rules (laughs) well and so see right there Tally that that's such a great example because that's one of the foundations of intuitive eating is that when there are no rules there's no no rule to break but when there are rules you're regularly breaking them so without the rule of how much you can eat of something or you know what it is you have no need to tap into that adolescent part or that even toddler part of breaking that rule. I wonder how many people listening are going, oh yeah, I have that childhood rule or I have that thing. I remember someone telling me about a, you know, chocolate and all the kind of sweet treats were considered in the house were had to be locked in a cupboard and you're only allowed it to be unlocked by a parent and have it then. So then obviously that becomes the focus of, your attention and you and your focus when you're in restriction mode as well that that's the that's the um the pinnacle that's the main food you want and how so much of that you can link you can kind of look back and go huh what was that food I was allowed or wasn't allowed from when I was when I was younger and I do find as well during the pandemic I really gravitated towards food my mom would make me to to, Mm -hmm. uh, really soothe myself certain sandwiches I made um Mm -hmm. certain dishes because oh it just it's just so interesting how your childhood are those really formative years of your relationship with food, even as an adult. And by the way, Halloween, which is coming up in our country. um, I I have so many families I've helped where they give the kids permission to collect everything and have as much as they want. And after two days, it's just just sitting there and they don't even look at it where the kids that are only allowed to have two pieces, they're begging every day for more. So you brought up a really uh, important point, Telly, and I don't know if you were going to ask me about it, but it's about emotion and eating. Oh, please, let's talk about it. I, okay. Do you know what I hadn't intended, but let's go there. Okay, I'll do it quickly. <laughs> you know, eating is emotional from the <laughs> moment an infant is born and gets its first taste of sugar water or milk, there's sugar there and sugar is soothing. It raises their serotonin levels and they feel comforted and soothed. Why should we ever judge that? Food can be incredibly soothing, whether it's a particular type of food or it's an amount of food that when you're giving yourself full permission to have whatever you want, eating more of it than you used to be allowed to eat, it is soothing. And we satisfaction is an emotion. We're allowed to feel satisfied with our food. 
Uh, and sometimes it is the coping mechanism that we need when we don't have other coping mechanisms. The goal, of course, is to develop many coping mechanisms. So food is one of your coping mechanisms, but it isn't the only one. In eating disorders, it's either the control of it or the abundance of it that tends to be the main coping mechanism for the per person. But I get troubled by people who think you should never have a bite of anything if you're emotional. And it's like, what? What? <laughs> I love food and I love how it soothes me on a daily basis. So, and I think it's soothing, but it's also celebratory. Celebratory. Yes. Okay, that was celebratory. There we go. Um, yes. you know, you just think of birthday cake. I just think birthday cake is a prime example of that's emotional eating because we're eating because we're celebrating and we're with people and and but we don't think of that necessarily as negatively. We always think it in a sad sense of when you know we're low and then we you know, eat more chocolate or whatever. Um, it's interesting how it seems to go one way and not necessarily the other. In terms of it being a negative thought about it? Yeah, in it? terms of it being more socially acceptable. And the sad thing is, is I've, I've worked with um, brides who won't eat their wedding cake. That's really How sad. heartbreaking is that? Really sad. You know. Really sad. So uh, yes, it's celebratory. Most, most cultures celebrate with food, an abundance of food. And you just think of all the different, yeah, all the different cultures and celebrations and holidays, different um, religions and different cultures uh, do. And uh, yeah, the food is what brings people together. It's, it's the, the common denominator between everyone, I think. Right. And that's emotional. That yeah. is you know, it's just wonderful sharing with people, getting you having joy in eating, which we have lost through diet culture. Lost I the joy it, of it. I imagine you've probably heard this with your clients, but I find it quite sad when people say like, oh, I don't eat, I don't eat for pleasure. I eat for fuel. Hmm. I just eat for fuel to, to work out in the gym. That's a really common one in the, the kind of fitness space. Like I just hmm. eat for fuel. I just eat for energy. I don't really, I'm not really bothered with flavor or whatever. Think that's really sad well yes it's it's heartbreaking and i've known people in my life didn't have eating disorders they truly just didn't get any enjoyment with food and one old friend of mine i realize now she's been depressed all of her life so that's probably why she didn't get enjoyment from it but i do find it extremely sad mm. uh, when people do that and they think there's an imperative for that some people no i shouldn't enjoy food i should just eat what i need to cover my energy needs and no, enjoy it. Sit down, relax, be grateful for it. Gratitude is an important part of it. By yeah, the way. being grateful. I was just about to say being grateful yeah. is huge. Um, yes. Elise, we are running to the end of our time. And I wanted to ask you, um, what does joyful movement mean to you as yes. that being part of that principle on movement? Um what does it mean to you? And when you were kind of have been writing about it, what what is that in its essence? What that is in its essence is me being eight years old, living in Chicago at the time, playing in front of the house with my little friends, doing double dutch jump rope, which I loved, and you know, passing the ball from one to the other, or at school doing four square or any of the uh, handball, the things that we did. There was no thinking about, am I doing this for a purpose? You, you know, a purpose other than having fun. 
and enjoyment. And um, given that I had parents who were very restrictive in terms of allowing me to do dangerous exercise and they didn't let me ride a bike. They didn't let me go ice skating. So I ended up having a kind of scared relationship with any kind of movement that would be perhaps in their opinion, dangerous. And then of course I didn't feel very coordinated. So uh, that wasn't joyful, but to come to a place where it's just joyful to do certain things that I like to do it brings me back. I'm very in touch with my little kid. You know, you were talking about being in touch with your teen. I'm so in touch with my teen and my little kid. And it brings me back to that. I have a memory of a day in the backyard of our house where we had a jungle gym. And the first time that I was able to spin myself all the way around a bar and come back up. And uh, that was joy. That was pure joy. So we have to get in touch with our little kids. That's what it means. Get in touch with that kid that just loved to move, that wasn't self-conscious about body size or whether they're doing things perfectly, but just just having fun. It's play. Yes, it's, it's play. It's play. And I think we lose that. You know, I could go, I could go on an, a monologue about this now, but mm-hmm. when it comes to moving our bodies, I think it gets so overcomplicated, so the fun sucked out of it but in its essence it's adult playtime. and if we came, if we brought it back to that and if we started doing things that our inner child really enjoyed our younger self enjoyed I think we could really discover a whole new way of thinking about moving our bodies and, and really find a happy relationship with something that becomes so fraught as we get older And isn't it equated to what we were talking about with satisfaction and eating, eating and movement, having joy in Mm. and pleasure in your eating, having joy and pleasure in your moving. It's so integrated. That's those are the things our bodies do every day if we're lucky enough to be able to do those things. And wow, to appreciate them and not constantly be thinking we're doing it wrong. We're not getting enough exercise or we're not eating right. You know, that kind of thing. Go ahead. And both of those things, diet culture tells us that we shouldn't enjoy. And if we're enjoying it, we're doing it wrong. If you're enjoying your food, then it must be unhealthy. If you're enjoying what you're doing, if you're enjoying your workout, then you're not working hard enough because it should be painful and punishing. You know, it's Mm -hmm. all about calorie burn. It, it just goes to show that a big red flag with diet culture is if it's, if diet, you know, if you think, is this a diet culture mindset? Am I feeling bad for feeling joyful? I think that's that's a really key thing. Oh, I love that. That's absolutely right. And so I finish every podcast by asking uh, each guest, what has been your most recent train happy moment? So I think um, you're, I think one of the things you mean is where did I um, challenge diet culture? Is that part of it? Where that? did you challenge diet culture? Yeah. It can be a variety of things, challenging diet culture, finding joy in movement, listening to your body in one way, just any example. Well, I'm going to start with that first one. Um, it was a, it was before COVID and I was at a small dinner party. There were six women there and four of them started talking about how they had lost this much weight, how much they had to lose, how you know, on and on about that. And Did I they know stood... who they'd invited. Oh, yeah, they're good friends. All of them were good friends of mine. Interesting. <laughs> All of them. Yeah, I know. I often say, have you read my book? And <laughs> I stood up and I said to them, stop, stop this. Every one of you is doing amazing and valuable things in this world. You're so interesting. You're so smart. Why are you wasting one minute of your life worrying that your body isn't good enough. And let me tell you, these women were in their 
anywhere from 50s to 70s. This is not young, you know, people. These are people how sad that at this point, in, at any point in our lives, but that they're still worrying about this. And so that was my moment. I stood up and I didn't silence myself because it was upsetting me so much. And I, and I challenged them. And I think a couple of them heard me. I don't know that they all did. I, cause I think it's so, in, you know, entrenched in them. That's my, that was, that was my moment. And I guess the, the joyful thing is really the memories of being a small child. I wish I could do double Dutch jump rope. I really do. That would be so wonderful. Do you, <laughs> do you even know what that is? Do you know what double Dutch I can't do it. No, I can't. But okay. during various lockdowns, skipping really came back in in, in fashion. Oh. It's all it's all the rage again. Really? Skipping? Oh, yeah, I it's love a really big skip. thing. If you go on Instagram, you can find people who make really cool videos. I'll give a shout out to anyone who wants to know what I'm referring to. There's an account called Skipping with Sarah. And Sarah, I think, listens to this podcast as well. Um, and she makes awesome content around intuitive movement and stuff. But she really got into skipping in lockdown. And she does these incredible routines <laughs> with her skipping rope. I can't even be- begin. Um, let, double Dutch is like the bare minimum requirement to do this. It's amazing. Um, and it's really making a comeback. And I think if we're talking about doing that thing you did as a child, like how many of us picked up a skipping rope in the playground? Right, right. How much fun would that be? So, Elise, it has been such a pleasure to chat to you, and I feel that we could talk for hours and hours. Um, but you have, uh, you kind of what's the word? You've got quite a uh, catalogue of work now for people to to kind of delve into. So, what books have you got coming out? You have brought out a journal this year. You have various workbooks. Um, where can people find out more about that? More about your work? So I was writing for about six years in a row with five publications. So at this point, I have nothing <laughs> in the future coming out that's my own. Um, I did, uh, there's, you know, the update on intuitive eating, the fourth edition. There's my teen workbook that came out a couple of years ago. This last June, the intuitive eating journal uh, came out, which is called your guided journey for nourishing a healthy relationship with food. And then the intuitive eating card deck, 50 bite-sized ways to make peace with food. Uh, There's also, of course, the intuitive eating workbook that came out a few years ago that goes along with intuitive eating. So there's that. The book I mentioned earlier, which I wrote the foreword for and and consulted with the authors is uh, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. We'll have to have them on the podcast. I'm going to make yes, sure that I find it fascinating. Yes, I will give you their contact information. Uh, so though, that's what's going on. I think, you know, at this point, I probably will just continue to do consulting with people. I'm kind of burned out after six years of writing in a row um, And in order to find me. So I have... Um, I have my own personal website, which is eliseresh.com. And that has a lot of personal things. I have words of wisdom. I have book, book. I uh, loved your words of wisdom. The Ugh. spiral. I wanted to talk on that, but. Okay. You want me to? Well, wait, <laughs> you I'm going to have to invite you back. I'm going to have to invite <laughs> you back. <laughs> but there's some really interesting thoughts on there. Yeah. 
And I don't do much on social media, but I am on Instagram at Elise Resch. And I mostly just put things in my story that somebody else has posted because I don't know how to work it myself. Uh, and I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, all those things. But it's um, my website. And then there's the intuitive eating website, uh, intuitiveeating.org that lists all the you know, synopsis of studies and information on how to become a certified intuitive eating counselor, which is we're training people all over the world. I will link all of that in the show notes for everyone listening. Um, but Elise, this has been such a pleasure. You're doing incredible work. You are changing people's lives. You were the kind of inspiration and spark behind what I do. So thank you so much. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you in person. I read your book and I know about you, but to have this opportunity has been great for me too. Thank you, Tal. Likewise. And if you're ever in London, please message me. <laughs> Okay, for sure. Bye-bye. And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. 